This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. It does not affect the lives of millions. It will not reshape the structure of our daily lives or really add importantly to either our wealth or our power. Yet it is still one of the most important acts of this Congress and of this administration. For it does repair a very deep and painful flaw in the fabric of American justice. It corrects a cruel and enduring wrong in the conduct of the American nation. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of American History 2. And after the brief episode we did where we focused very specifically on the midterm elections today, we're bringing you a podcast where we could do an entire 10-part series on it and probably still not have done a comprehensive job of it. And to begin to tackle this topic uh, with me is, as always, Dr. Malcolm Craig. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Mark. Uh, my contributions to this episode may sound slightly echoier than usual because I'm sitting in the kitchen of the house we just moved to about three weeks ago. Uh, so things are still in a bit of uh, a state of flux. But yes, definitely, you're dead right. I mean, we could spend tens of episodes uh, looking at immigration in the United States and still not have properly uh, covered it in any meaningful way. But in order to try and uh, talk about it in a meaningful way, for 45 to 50 minutes. We're very, very lucky uh, to be joined by Gronje McEvoy, uh, who has done an extensive research uh, into the topic of immigration in the United States, uh, its relationship with religion and various other things. And we're delighted to have uh, such kind of expert witness uh, to come and guide us through this at times controversial uh, and often convoluted topic. So Gronje, thank you very much for joining us from South Bend, Indiana. Uh, and could you just give us a minute or so about uh, yourself and your research. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. This is great. Um, really exciting. And I, I think I mentioned to you before that I noticed that the origins of this podcast were in the um, the American history class at the University of Edinburgh, which is where I got my start in American history a very, very long time ago. <laughs> so this feels very full circle, um, and it's lovely to join you. Um, I hope I can. Um, I hope I can try to start to shed some light. I think what you said about how much time we could spend on this topic given the current climate and given the history, um, is exactly spot on. So we'll make a start and we'll do what we can. At the minute, immigration historians are are really working overtime to um, sort of try and, uh, you know, explain that history to the general public through Twitter and through blogs and um, even participating in Supreme Court uh, sort of amicus briefs. So there are a lot of people working really hard on this and if we can do something here that would be great um so me my background is i um i got my phd at boston college finished in 2014 a few years ago and i've been i was back in my um obviously not from south bend indiana i was back in my um in my home country of ireland and did a postdoc at trinity a couple of years ago and um i work on catholic social thought and immigration policy in the 20th century. So I really look at the period from around the 1910s um, when we start to see uh, fairly um, extensive immigration restrictions introduced um, 
sorry, we don't start to see them there, but what we're going to get to that, um, up until 1965 to the Immigration Reform Act of um, Hart Cellar. And uh, I really look at how Catholic immigration experts, um, social theorists, others, try to participate in the debate around immigration during that period. Because really, that period, although we have those restrictions in place, was a, pro- was a whole process of reforming immigration constantly. So that's, that's what I work on, and hopefully we can talk a bit more about that as we, as we go on. I, th- I think we definitely shall. <laughs> um, but, but, but before we get there, and, and to make this this uh, big topic somewhat more manageable, we're going to mostly be focusing on, on the sort of twentieth century period and specifically the era that you that you outlined. But to give you a little bit of a challenge before we get there, I was hoping you might be able to give our listeners a sense of you know what was U.S. immigration policy like before the twentieth century. Um, you know. What 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 were what were the main kind of parameters that were going on there for you to be allowed to come to the United States and stay in say for the Civil War onwards? Right. So I mean, the short answer is for the majority of people who were coming in, um, there weren't very many parameters. Um, Men, I is you know probably one of the most well known historians of immigration writing at the minute, and she's explained this as. Um, the introduction of the laws in the 1920s that we're going to talk about transformed U.S. policy from normatively open to normatively closed. Um, so, you know, what she says there is for the 19th century, unless you fell within specific excludable categories. So um, we'll get to some of those. As an immigrant, you can more or less assume that you'll be granted permission to, to enter. Now, you're going to have to go through health inspections. There's some other checks. Um, we've all seen The Godfather Part 2, poor little Vito Corleone, Newton's way through Ellis Island. That's a little bit later. But, um, but you know, in general, there were no visas, there were no passports. You didn't have to go to the London consulate for an interview like I did this time last year in the cold weather. Um, and um, so generally, for most people, it wasn't, uh, there were no major restrictions on immigration. Um, now, there were, there are significant and really important exceptions to that. Um the most important one, which I know you've already discussed uh, in the series, is was the Chinese Exclusion Act and the um, exclusion of um, basically Chinese laborers, but that's going to cover most Chinese people. Um, from 1882, there was the Page Act before that that affected Chinese women. Um, so that's that's the biggest exception, but I won't say too much about that because I know you've discussed that before. Um, and then there were other uh, restrictions brought in in a couple of federal immigration acts in 1882 and 1891. And those um, those laws were designed to centralise immigration control within the federal government rather than at the state level, which had been the case before. Um, and what they did in terms of how that would affect whether you could come in or not was they introduced excludable ca- classes like criminals, prostitutes, people with mental illness, um, uh, those likely to become a public charge, which is an important one, which is going to come up again and again. Um, felons, polygamists, other groups, and those suffering from contagious diseases, right? Which is why Vito Corleone gets his, his eyelids checked or whatever it is they're doing to check for um, eye disease. So those restrictions were in place. Um, and just one other note, um, and because I, I have some good friends and colleagues who worked on this project on, on this topic. Before even Chinese exclusion, we did see state level restrictions before the federal government really took sort of uh, centralized control of immigration policy. Um, and these were based on per, uh, colonial poor laws that allowed the state to remove a person if they become a burden uh, on, on the states. And so this affected people in Massachusetts and New York. Um, 
and uh, it, it, it was a sort of formative uh, stage in the history of deportation law and it also helped um, establish some parameters for immigration restriction at the federal level. So that's what we're talking about in the 19th century. Um, and in terms of the people who came, like, you know, a lot of your listeners are probably aware of the significant numbers of Irish who migrated, especially after the famine, but then, um, you know, throughout the 19th century. Germans were the major European group to migrate in those middle decades of the 20th or the 19th century, sorry. Um, Chinese immigrants up until exclusion came in significant numbers to the West Coast. Uh, and then from the 1890s, and we're going to talk a lot about this, I know, um, we start to see a change, a shift towards migration, immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. Um, so migrants from Italy in particular, uh, the Russian Empire, so Poles, Czechs, Slovaks, um, Greeks, Romanians, and these groups of people took up about 70% of the, of the flow from the 1890s onwards. So that's a significant shift, which is really going to affect how immigration law changes a term that seems to be kind of this bandied about a lot regarding u.s immigration uh in this time is the idea of the melting pot the united states as this this melting pot i wonder if you could you could talk briefly what did what did the idea of the melting pot mean to people in the late 19th and earlier early 20th century yeah so um the melting pot i mean it's you know, it, to, to certain, to some people it was a pejorative, to some people it was a, a good thing, a benefit. Um, I, it's very hard to trace the, the origins of some of these terms, but the melting pot seems to have emerged really amongst, um, amongst immigrants themselves, uh, in maybe as early as the mid 19th century. Um, and German Americans especially talked about it as a sort of positive, right? A goal, an ongoing process. And the idea was America is this crucible, um, and it's a crucible, it's a, a pot that works to amalgamate immigrants' best traits into this new American identity. Um, so that's a very positive thing, right? This idea that it takes the best from immigrants. And we still hear this rhetoric today. Um, we get into the late 19th century and optimism about the power of the melting pot begins to waver, um, especially amongst those who are um, watching this influx of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe with trepidation um there's a concern um that the melting pot just isn't going to be strong enough to melt away the multiplicity of languages that there's so many catholics and, and jewish people in this group um they look very different to immigrants that had been coming beforehand all of these this this uh, extra foreignness seems to be too much of a threat to the melting pot as well as the sheer volume of people coming in so um and then of course as you probably know we see the um sort of uh, emergence of race science, social science, um, towards the end of the 19th century, uh, that's going to have a significant effect on how immigration law will be reshaped. Um, and they're expressing concerns about, about the power of the melting pot. But at the same time, we still have, it retains a sort of potency amongst progressives and social reformers around the turn of the century. And I want it probably one of the most, well, well known, but definitely used by immigration historians in teaching sort of um, images of the melting pot is uh, there's a, a great photograph of Henry Ford's um, English school, the graduates of Henry Ford's English school, literally marching into a massive pot um, and they're all dressed in their supposedly, you know, their their native 
clothes from whatever country they came from. I'm not sure if the people wearing the clothes actually were from those countries, probably not. Um, and then they marched into the melting pot and emerged in, you know, American clothes, waving American flags. So this is this very visual uh, representation of the melting pot. And it's seen as a positive thing um, by the likes of Henry Ford, but also by um, other, you know, progressives and social reformers who um, want to smooth the way for assimilation for the, the new, these new immigrants. Um, the, but I would just add, just because of my own research, um, amongst Catholic critics at the time, Catholic bishops, the melting pot was also viewed as a, potentially a coercive assimilation. Um, they were very concerned about this sort of Protestant tinge to the, the melting pot, a melting pot controlled by Anglo-Americans. And so um, Catholic groups, and, and this may have been true of other um other groups that were perhaps outside of that Anglo-American core were very concerned that the melting pot um, was too coercive. Um, so I, I hope that I hope that sort of gets it. <laughs> that term. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And just as a as a quick follow up, in in terms of when you're mentioning the sort of the the beginnings of the fears around immigrants that you know start in the 1890s, specific or ramp up in the 1890s. I was just wondering, uh, just purely because it's sort of something that's talked about a lot just now, is this a case where, you know, often you've got the immigrants flooding into the city, I probably shouldn't use the word flooding, immigrants going into the cities, um, and um, I mean, today you've got sort of, it seems to be the people that fear immigrants the most are the ones that don't have any contact with them uh, in terms of, uh, in that way, and I was wondering, uh, in terms of people living in rural areas, where are generally quite white and homogenous areas, is it the same back in back at this time, or is it people that don't have that much contact with the immigrants that fear them, or is it the people that are living in, say, for example, New York, Boston, and are like, oh my god, these people are cramping our style yeah, or whatever? Yeah. You know? It's a really good question, um, and I'm not sure. I think probably because that a lot of the material we have, the evidence we have that you know records feelings and views on the immigrants is made a lot of well a lot of what I would work with is made by first hand observers you know so um they would have been in in some of the sort of northeast cities that we we think about when we think about these uh, european immigrants but um but it's a good question because you know if if we look at sort of um immigrants you know in the, maybe in the midwest uh, the, the the difference there is that the rates of um they're generally doing better in, in places like that. I mean, that's part of that. It's, it's part of why they're going to places like Chicago, St. Louis, and some of the, these new cities that are opening up in the Midwest. And so I think perhaps the argument could be made that people who are living in, not that the Midwest is necessarily totally rural then, but people who are living in less populated parts of the country were coming into contact with immigrants who were generally faring better. Um, so it's a really good question. I don't know if I have a very good answer to it, but um, yeah, yeah, it's just that's just my thought in response to that. So we've done quite, and it's interesting you point out, kind of, you know, the the rise of kind of you know racial science and and all of this thing that's happening at the same time as this uh, significant immigration to the United States. And we've done quite a few episodes, you know, discussing the early twentieth century. And and one thing that comes up again and again and again is just how racist this period in American history 
is even by the standards of some other really racist period in US history. So we've, I mean, for you know, the revival of the KKK and how the KKK targets ethnic groups beyond African Americans. We've discussed anti-Asian sentiment, like the Chinese Exclusion Act and the so-called Gentlemen's Agreement that takes place with Japan and all these other things that are uh, going on. Does this kind of, does racism and in whatever form it takes and anti-immigrant settlement is that targeted at all ethnic groups coming to the US or is there a specific focus to the uh, distrust and uh, dislike and sometimes overt hatred of immigrants yeah I mean I think um, by the time we get to the early 20th century um, a lot of this anti-immigrant sentiment is really directed against southern and eastern Europeans now of course the caveat there is that um, Chinese exclusion and other Asian groups um, are progressively being you know legislated against right so the gentlemen's agreement I know you've talked about before um, with Japan uh, so I don't want to I don't want to suggest that Europeans are the only people on the obviously receiving um, this anti-immigrant sentiment that's that's clearly wrong, but the, the 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 focus of a lot of immigration um, re- proponents of immigration restriction um, at the sort of general federal level, their focus um, really at this point had turned to these southern and eastern Europeans, and I was trying to figure out they were trying to figure out a way to do that because they're not Asians, they're not you know these people are European, they're of the same, they're from the same sort of continental landmass as you know the the ancestors of the likes of Henry Cabot Lodge or right? the the senator from uh, Massachusetts who's a, who's a big mover and shaker in the um, this restriction movement um but they're but they're still they still see them as different right they still see them as you know they're catholic they're jewish their their skin tone slightly different all of those things and there was a sense of of a racial difference but it's but it's how to put that into legislation is what really bothers them so um, one thing that um, really becomes sort of becomes a, a focus is a literacy test act, and so it's um, the literacy test act is uh, you know the idea is you can only you can't be admitted if you're illiterate. Um, at one point, it was if you were illiterate in English, which was obviously going to be very hard bar to, to reach for most of these immigrants. But then that was changed to one's native language, and it takes a long time to introduce this. But it's clear it's clearly a, a placeholder for trying to reduce migration from southern and eastern Europe because the the people those who put it together knew that um, literacy rates in those parts of Europe were lower than northern and western Europe, and um, so that that tells us that that. Though that that those Europeans from that part of Europe were uh, the focus of much of this anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, now, one thing I would say too is that I I always find it really important, and it's really important today and historically, and in how we view our history, to parse out the difference between sentiment and the enactment of policy, because. You know, we know that the Irish in the 19th century, even into the 20th century, were subject to anti-immigrant, anti-Irish nativism. We know that in the mid 19th century, but they were never the they they were never subjected to um, exclusion on the basis of their national origins or their race in the way that Chinese or other groups were. So, um, I think I, I really like this question, and you can see I'm sort of veering into the policy side of things because that's usually where I focus but um I think talking about anti-immigrant sentiment is really important to, to 
measure the tone and you know we hear a lot about the chilling effect of, of what the Trump administration is doing today and I think that was probably true of, of the period we're talking about um, but I, I what I'm interested in too is where sentiment turns into actual policy and legislation that affects people's lives well, I'm glad you said that. That's a wonderful transition because uh, I, w- I wanted to nudge you along to the sort of the whopping big policy change that occurs um, in U.S. immigration policy. First, tentatively in 1921, and then finally put in stone with the sort of Immigration Act of 1924. So I was wondering, what were the sort of you you, enter, you mentioned it before we recorded some really interesting weeds in this discussion. But first of all, well, and yeah. What were the sort of big headline measures? You know, what what does the Immigration Act of 1924 do? Yeah, so the Immigration Act of 1924, Reed Johnson, we know, we, we always give, you know, we think about these Immigration Acts with their, their names of their legislators. Um, the, the main thing that, one of the main, the main thing it does, I have to commit to one, um, was it put, it was the first permanent cap on immigration, upper level cap on immigration. And that's, that's just a really important concept to think about because for the first time for American immigration, there's a limit to the number of people who can come in, um, whereas beforehand nothing like that existed. Now, that excludes the Western Hemisphere, right? So the Western Hemisphere, there's no limit to the number of people who can come in from there. Um, and that's for obvious reasons to do with diplomacy and then obviously the labor supply that they want to keep, keep coming from um, Mexico and, and Central America. Um, so the first permanent cap on immigration, that's that's significant. Um, it also confirms that aliens ineligible to become citizens will be excluded. So it basically consolidates various restrictions against different Asian immigrant groups. Um, and that's very significant. Um, and then it creates a quota and a non-quota class. So I did say that there's a cap. Um, in the non-quota class, that there's no cap to that, right? So, but it's a, at this stage, it's a fairly, it's a fairly constrained group. So it's things like, um, the husbands, not the wives, but the husbands of citizens, the children of citizens, um, and some professional classes. So there's no limit to the number of those people who can come in. But the bulk of immigrants fall under a quota, and that's, that's the cap we're talking about. So what's significant about 1924, um, is, uh, and now I just have to, Add in. I know you told me to stay, to try not to get into too many weeds, but the fact that we had the 1921 Emergency Quota Act three years previous um, is, is important to know because there's a shift between the 1921 and 1924 Act in terms of what the quota immigrants, who, who can comprise the quota immigrants. So if you'll allow me, I'll just explain that. So the, the 1921 Emergency Quota Act, um, it said that... Uh, the immigrants who came in had to be a proportion of each nationality in the 1910 census, right? So that date's important, obviously, because a lot of Southern and Eastern Europeans had already arrived in the country by 1910. Um, but by 1924, the decision is made to, to move that back to 18, the 1890 census before a, huge, a large number of Southern and Eastern European come. So what they're doing is progressively trying to move the bar of what they want immigrants immigration to look like closer and closer to sort of the ethnic makeup of the country at its foundation that's that's what they're trying to do um this is ex- clearly deliberately targeted at southern and eastern europeans because of how immigration changed between 1890 and 1910 and so what it means is um the overall cap of quota immigrants is reduced to about 164,000 
86% of those can come from Northern and Western Europe, only 12% from Southern and Eastern Europe, and a token 100 per country from anywhere else outside the Western Hemisphere. Um, now, do you want me to go on to, well, has the, the really, the other important bit yeah, is... <laughs> hit us with the weeds, come on, let's get digging. Yeah, so here's, here's the really important weeds. So this, um, 2% of the 1890 census that I just mentioned was actually only temporary. What the 1924 Act also said was that um, it, it created a, a, a National Origins Quota System Board that had to get to work to figure out um, a more permanent quota system. And this was going to get even further, even closer, they, they thought, they hoped, to the sort of ethnic makeup of the country, racial makeup of the country at its foundation. So... Um, this, this, this was supposed to go into effect in 1927. It didn't go into effect until 1929, which tells us about how much difficulty they had in actually figuring out what to do. Um, and so what the National Quota System eventually um, determined was it gave an annual quota for each national group um, in proportion to what they call the national origin of the of the population in 1920. So on one hand, they said, this is much more um, generous, right? We're, we're looking at the population today and we're going to allow immigrants to come in on the basis of what, what today's population, who, who's in today's population. But what they actually did was they come up with this extremely elaborate um, system of a, determining the national origins of the population based on things like um, the first census in 1790, which was really patchy and only really existed for certain states. They used things like um, they determined people's ethnicity by their last name in that 1790 census. They um, came up with really dubious mathematics to figure out sort of the hypothetical number of descendants from someone who was alive in, you know, 1790, that kind of thing. Um, they also, and this is really important, they took out of their calculations um, the descendants of people who were born or descended from Native Americans, African slaves, and immigrants from Asia and the Western Hemisphere. So, yeah, so they're saying this is, the American population is, is white, is European, all of those other groups are not actually in, you know, our, our stock, whether that's Native or immigrants. Um, and that clearly has a bearing on how many immigrants can come from African countries, my Asian countries are, are excluded anyway. Um, and so, that, so that's really significant to bear in mind. And it tells us a lot about how the, the architects of the National Origins Court System viewed America, the, Amer- the idea of American nationhood, belonging, everything. So what this achieves, and this is where the weeds, we come out of the weeds, <laughs> this achieves is, um, it's similar to 1924, but it's permanent. So 83% of visas are going to go to Northwestern Europe, 15% to Southeastern Europe, and even fewer, but 2% to the rest of the world. Um, and that's, again, like a token number. So it's only about 4,000 to anywhere outside of Europe. Um, so that's where we are by the end of the 1920s. Um, I hope that I hope we could see through all those ways <laughs> and figure out those numbers. I, I get my policy one cat on me when I think about these laws. Imagine being in my classroom. <laughs> well, going going into the weeds is is super super important. Detail matters. <laughs> yeah. Detail really really matters, especially within these situations. So, thinking of what you you know, to, you know kind of getting into the weeds of what this actually does and does it does it does it work? Does all of this actually? It, make the United States 
are, for want of a better term, a whiter, more ethnically homogenous nation? Does does it have the effects that the people who put it in place wanted it to have? Yeah, so, I mean, so it certainly dramatically reduces immigration. Um, and it dramatically reduces the proportion of the population who were immigrants. Um, so, you know, the peak year of immigration is in 1907, that's 1.2 million. And we don't get anywhere near that for a long time. After that, um, it, the immigration dips during World War One, but it climbs again in 1921 up to 800,000. But then it falls way down, um, to as low as 23,000 in 1933. So, um, it, it, it works in terms of regulating the actual admission of people. And there's a couple of metrics that might be useful. So the proportion of English speaking immigrants increases significantly. Um, in 1914, about 8.8% of immigrants could speak English. And in 1924, 28.3% were English speakers. So that tells you a fair amount. Um, and then just proportion of the population, uh, it, obviously there's a lag effect, right? So, you know, the proportion of the population made up of immigrant people born abroad um, is at its peak in the 1890s at almost 15%. But by 1970, so there's the lag, obviously, because by 1970, the law has changed again. But, you know, the lag from the 1920s is, is taking effect. The low point of immigrants in the population, it's 4.7. So only 4.7% of the population in 1970 are immigrants. Now, in terms of white, ethically homogenous, um, I, I, I'm hoping there's someone out there who, uh, you know, understands these figures better than me because I, it's very hard actually to, based on how, you know, the definition of race in the census changes so much for all sorts of reasons, political and, um, and, and otherwise, um, it's, it's quite hard to, you know, get hard numbers on, on this kind of thing, but, I mean, yes, like it, it, it clearly, the reduction of, uh, immigration from other, or, or sorry, the, the exclusion of immigration from parts of the world that were not European is going to have an effect. At the same time, we do see in this period, because immigration is cut off from Europe and there's a labor, there's going to be a labor issue there, we see an increase in immigration from, um, from Mexico, from, um, Latin America, Mexico in particular though, um, and, that you know that that's a question of how how you know how race is going to be defined at different points in time, but that portion of the population is going to increase. But in general, I mean, they 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 it's seen the architects of the 1924 Act pretty much achieved their their aim in terms of um, reducing the proportion of the population that were immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, just a very small follow up, and no problem if you don't know anything about this. Is there not a point during the Great Depression in the 1930s or where there's some sort of forced deportation of Mexicans that are there as well? Like, I, don't, I don't know if you know anything about that. If there's... Yeah, so, um, yeah, no, that, that's really important. They, uh, you know, the, the large scale migration of, of Mexican, of Mexican laborers in particular, um, really starts to take off from the middle of the 20th century. But, and, you know, the history of, of Mexican migration into the U.S. obviously is, is, um, the, the, starting that story is a very hard thing to do because obviously a lot of the southwest of the U.S. was Mexico and, um, you know, the border was not, you know, it's not the fixed thing that, that we imagined it to be. Um, but the 1930s, yes. And I think I, I, I mentioned a little while ago, they're liable to become a public charge clause. Um, 
that uh, was brought in in the late 19th century. And although migration from the Western Hemisphere was not limited um, in terms of a cap, uh, at various times, the federal government applied the libel to become a public charge clause in order to control the flow of migration, especially from Mexico. Um, and the 1930s is a good example of that. Um, so, you know, what that says is you can't enter the country or you're sent back if you become uh, a burden on the state. Um, and the 1930s, um, they they used this clause in particular. Um, and and the, the case that you're referring to, we heard a lot of, we've heard a lot about it in recent years because um, there was, and I, this, the, I don't have the figures to hand, but there was a significant deportation of, um, and repatriation of Mexican in the US. And that included a significant number of American born um, children, uh, born to Mexican immigrant parents, but obviously American citizens. Um, so that's why that case got so much attention because of, um, you know, all of what's been happening with family separation and, um, deportation today. Cool. Th- th- thank you very much for that. So, I mean, if we if we leave behind the the roaringly racist twenties um, and and the thirties, and we jump forward a few decades, you know, the, the US has now come through the Great Depression, World War Two, and it's had this new Immigration Act in place. And there, as at least as I understand it, according to the narrative I've sort of heard, it's by the nineteen fifties a more you know, a more homogenous white identity that includes formerly excluded immigrants, you know, or, or discriminated against immigrants such as the Irish and Italians who, you know, having fought shoulder to shoulder with WASP Americans in Europe and the Pacific, are now accepted into US society. You know, we're about to have a Catholic president for the first time in, in John F. Kennedy. And immigration just isn't really a hot button political issue. Or at least, at least that's the narrative. Like, is is that a good summation of how things go until you know we're going to talk about what happens when we get to nineteen sixty five? But is that sort of an accurate reflection? Yeah, I mean, I think um, so because I'm an immigration of twentieth century, or sorry, historian of twentieth century immigration. Uh, I obviously want to say that immigration is always important, <laughs> um, and I probably would, I would sort of just question that. Um, you know, yeah, my hot button political issues is probably uh, something I'm sure, you know, maybe we couldn't apply specifically to this. But in this period, basically after World War Two, for the reasons you've mentioned, you know, this idea of this sort of the ascendancy of middle class white ethnics, we'll call them, as they would have been called um, fairly frequently in history, um, you know, non-Anglo names in the middle class amongst military leaders and heroes of World War Two. In Congress, um, and of course, you know, in the White House, and, and eventually, you know, in Kennedy's administration, there's going to be a lot of non-Anglo, you know, names in there. Um, that's all. It's all really important because, um, you know, what we see from basically after the Second World War, um, and definitely in the 1950s, is although maybe immigration reform isn't a hot button issue, there is a constant push to repeal the national origins quota system, um, in particular. And it's coming from uh, this group that you're talking about. It's coming from these sort of um, middle class and, and more more powerful, more educated. Of course, the, you know, the GI Bill is an important factor here. Um, group of uh, Italian Americans, Irish Americans, certainly, um, you know, other uh, Southern and Eastern European uh, descendants are, are, you know, a couple of generations removed. Um, and, you know, 
obviously we don't like to say anything is inevitable in history and it's not but um in a lot of ways sort of the fate of the 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 national origins quota system was kind of you know you can see it uh, in danger from from fairly early on in the 1950s one uh, galvanizing moment was the McCarran Walter Act Walter McCarran sorry I was I was mixed up <laughs> the order um and that was passed in 1952 and you know this was a moment where there was a, a hope that immigration restriction or immigration policy was going to be really transformed but it actually retained the national origins quota system um and so for um for those who wished to see the quota system repealed this became the sort of lightning rod moment um and Here's where I want to give us all um, a moment of optimism because um, a historian, Oscar Handlin, um, uh, one of the most significant historians of US immigration, was really crucial in this sort of campaign to repeal the national origins quota system. So we should take heart um, that we can make that kind of a difference. Um, and uh, Oscar Handlin, um, what he does is he he takes the national origins quota system and he really just picks it apart um ridicules it exposes it he he speaks on this and he writes on this he appeared before um there was a presidential commission on immigration launched after the McCarran Walter Act um and they issued a report called whom we shall welcome um and the title of that's actually significant because it's a quote from uh, George Washington I think and so it's sort of saying like it's it's the national this is our tradition it's our heritage to be welcoming to immigrants so what Handlin does is he you know he picks apart all those methodological holes in the national origins quota system um in this really you know uh wonky nerdy sort of way and um he he says that these figures were produced based on what he calls discredited doctrines of anglo-saxon nordic superiority not based on reliable statistics so he says this quota system this is not who the nation is um and so these ideas, um, this, this, these arguments articulated by Handel and many others, um, that this was a nation of immigrants, um, that's, that's another, you know, it's another term that we talked about, um, before, before we met today, um, that the nation is, this is a nation of immigrants, um, and that the past 30 years of restriction are an aberration from that heritage. That becomes a really important part of, um, tackling the national origins quota system and working towards, um, repeal but the the group that you're mentioning um are are really important this is sort of the you know the the white ethnics who have kind of emerged into a middle class are really important um i could say a few more things about the nation of immigrants uh um idea and how and the problems with it but i don't know if you want me to get into that well, or not. I, I wouldn't mind asking i've got a kind of <clears throat> question related to about the the american position in the world yeah. At the time, right? Because obviously, yeah. you know, we're you know entering the era of <coughs> you know the the world is decolonizing. Uh, yeah. Newly independent nations in Africa and Asia and various other places. There's the era of the kind of the emerging and then solidifying contest between communism and and capitalism under the rubric of the Cold War. How much is the fact that America is is fighting this ideological conflict and trying to appeal to newly independent nations how much does that affect thinking about about immigration policy and what the US does to to welcome or not to welcome yeah the foreign born coming to its shores definitely i'm really glad you asked that because that's really important and um i should have mentioned that um i mean this this global uh, context is is vital um i'm sure you know we're all familiar with Mary Dudziak's work on 
co-born civil rights and you know this one of one of the books that has influenced me the most well, there you in, in being a historian <laughs> yeah so i mean there's just there's a similar thing happening with immigration reform and it's you know it's no coincidence that you know the three major pieces of legislation um that you know johnson signs are going one of them is going to be immigration and then immigration act and then there's civil rights and voting rights act so the, these things do come as come together and um the i would say that you know, from the period just after World War Two, when the question of what to do with um, refugees and displaced persons is is kind of it's, it's the immigration issue in those years immediately following World War Two, and that with the sort of the beginning of the Cold War, that um, is a sort of a moment where uh, those protesting for immigration reform are saying we're supposed to be you know the leaders of the democratic free world. We're supposed to um, be uh, uh, taking this role in uh, in on the global stage, and our civil rights. Um, you know, later on the discussion will be that the civil civil rights situation with African Americans is is a national shame, and so immigration reformers are going to use the same kind of logic. Um, so that the Cold War context is really important. Okay, and we get to 1965, and you know, Lyndon Johnson, you know, in his typical understated way when it comes to signing bills, goes to the Statue of Liberty, you know, under, you know, the giving me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearn to break free, and signs, um, the, the Immigration Reform Act of 1965, Heart Cellar, as you know, you said you love calling it by the bill's name sponsors. Which, as I understand it, completely reforms the immigration system all over again. Um, and yet, I looking back in history, I feel like this almost goes entirely unnoticed. So, first of all, does it go unnoticed? And, and what, what what is in this new act, and how can it have gone so much under the radar? Yeah, so um, the Heart Cellar Act comes in in 1965, and it's you know it's really the result of a very long process that we were just talking about of, of trying to get rid of the national origins quota system, but figuring out how to do that. And in ways it reminds me of sort of, you know, figuring out how to introduce the national origins quota system to begin with. It's almost like, you know, lawmakers know what they want to achieve, but they don't know how to do it in legislative practical terms. Maybe that's lawmaking in general. I don't know. Um, so what the Heart Seller Act does, um, is, you know, the important thing that LBJ wants to note is that it abolishes the, the national origins quota system. Um, it abolishes the Asia Pacific Triangle, right? So it re- removes, um, any restrictions on immigration, um, on the basis of race, uh, at least, you know, at that, at that level. Um, it imposes a, a greater worldwide cap, but still a cap, right? We still have a ceiling. And again, we still have quota and non-quota classes. Um, they, the other thing that it does is um, it imposes two separate caps for the Eastern Hemisphere and for the Western Hemisphere. Um, and in the way, that's significant because, as, as we mentioned already, the Western Hemisphere didn't have an overall uh, country limit at all um, beforehand, or an overall cap, sorry. So um, there are 120,000 uh, annual cap for migrants from the Western Hemisphere. Um, there's no preference system, which there will be for the Eastern Hemisphere, and I'll get to that in a second. And there's no country limit, although that's going to change. And um, so that has, that is of major significance for migration from Mexico, which at this stage is is increasing significantly. And there has been a lot of labour migration from from Mexico, and and 
Um, what's interesting about that is that you know this the imposition of the Western Hemisphere cap was actually um, a compromise to Southern Democrats who were very reluctant to to sign the Hard Seller Act and. This was one way to get them on board. It was a you know an extra restriction. And so, in terms of 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 the effect that this had on the United States, you know, we hear a lot about the fact that in the future the United States is going to be a majority minor, minority country. And I can only imagine that part of the reason that this is is on the road to this is because of the effects of of the nineteen sixty five Act. I mean, is that true? Did it have a dramatic impact on on the makeup of the United the ethnic makeup of the United States? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely did. A uh, and the the nineteen sixty five Act itself, and then to an extent, other things that happened since. But the the Hard Seller Act was was really important. So, um, one thing I didn't mention, um, I forgot to mention, was in the Act, um, the preference system that was introduced. That because this helps explain this story. Um, it, it, it was regardless of race or national origin, but it gave 80% to family members, 20% for skills, um, and a small percentage to refugees. So what that means is, um, if you're a citizen or a permanent resident, you know, you, you've got, uh, there, there are a lot of ways in which your family members from abroad can come into the country. So this is going to be really important because it kind of, it, it explains a lot about the intentions of the architects of Heartseller, but it also explains the massive changes that resulted. So, so just to just touch on those changes. Um, first of all, there's a, a massive increase in the number of immigration. So between 1971 and 1980, we've got 4.5 million immigrants arriving per year, right? So that's a massive increase, um, compared to numbers even from, you know, the 1910s. Um, a lot of, family reunions, um, Italians and others are bringing brothers and sisters in, but a lot of that is completed by the mid 1970s. So what we, what the, this, the major significance is the composition of immigration, um, after 1965, because it is, um, majority from Asia, um, Mexico, Latin America, and also Africa as sort of we get towards the end of the 20th century. Uh, this in the, the 1990s. Um, Asian migration is, is extremely significant. So between 1960 and 64, only about 42.6% of the total come from sort of outside of Europe. But by the 1970s, 75% of the total are coming from outside of Europe. Um, and I, I think it's really important to note how unintended these consequences were. And this gets back to, you know, Johnson's sort of this is really significant, but it's, not, it's also not going to make a big difference comments at the Statue of Liberty. Um, because, and, and we know this because, um, you know, uh, political or legislators on the floor of Congress themselves were saying this isn't going to create a lot of change. Um, Hartzeller was really about righting a perceived wrong in the past, which was the national origins quota system. And yes, it was you know, in part designed to allow reunification of the likes of Italian families. But it was really about how Americans of various ethnicities and races felt about their place in society. So it was about Americans as much, if not more, than it was about future immigrants. Um, and uh, I think, I'm not, I can't remember the story and you said this, but it's the National Origins Quota System was seen as a proxy for the status of those Americans. So, um so this was the intention was that if, if we base the law around family reunification, we're going to basically shore up the existing sort of ethnic makeup. 
um, and we're not going to get a big increase of immigrants because once those families are unified, that's that's done. Um, but what they don't expect is that um, this underestimates that by opening up immigration to the world, skilled immigrants are going to be coming in and they're then going to bring in their family members also. And this is where we see a large increase of migration from Asia. Um, so this is where sort of the transformation was massive and the intentions were totally, or it was totally unintended um, sort of consequences. Everyone from Robert Kennedy to Edward Kennedy to Emmanuel Seller, one of the acts, um, sort of they give his name to the act, they all said, you know, the ethnic mix of this country will not be upset. We won't have immigrants, many immigrants from Africa or Asia. And that proved to be, to be mostly wrong. So... And one element of the kind of the, the kind of event narrative on you know 1965 and these you know changes in in, in U.S. law was that it's the result of years of lobbying and campaigning by ethnic groups and religious organisations. So, with a particular focus on on religious organisations, what extent is that actually true in terms of getting this this change in the law passed? Yeah, so uh, this is the focus of my research. So I would like to argue that that was absolutely true. <laughs> um, I focused on um, on Catholic uh, Catholic organizations, Catholic individuals, um, mainly working within the um, the National Catholic Welfare Conference, which is uh, you know the forerunner to today's USCCB, the, the Conference of Catholic Bishops. Um, so, uh, I've looked at, at Catholic, um, we'll call them lobbyists. They couldn't really call themselves lobbyists because there are sort of legal issues around that. Um, but, you know, I know from my work that there were, there was a huge amount of work going on amongst Protestant organizations, Jewish groups in particular, um, the Anti-Defamation League of Nyberth were really active on this as on many issues of sort of racial equality and discrimination, um, in American life. So, um, you know, my I, my argument for this would be that it's a, it's a very it's a long process, and uh, for Catholics, if I could sort of talk about my the Catholic people that I write about in particular, really from the end of the First World War, when we see the introduction of the immigration restrictions of the 1920s, um, they're beginning to Catholic agencies are beginning to establish themselves in physically in Washington D.C. Um, as lobbying groups they're paying attention to changes in immigration law um and they are constantly appearing before congressional committees um they're more so after the second world war they're beginning to work together um initially on the refugee issue they're working with other religious groups um for catholics they're pushing for family um family unity is is crucial because they're basing their criticism of immigration law on catholic social thought which sees the family as the core unit of a stable society. And so um, they're pushing for thing, changes in the law that will allow, for example, in the 1920s, um, Italian male immigrants whose wives and children are still in Italy to bring those family members in, that kind of thing. Um, but they're also pushing for things like um, an end to the Bracero program because of how it affects, how it um, breaks up families in Mexi- between Mexico and the US. Um by the time we get to the 60s, uh, sorry, I'll just say for the, for the 1950s, I mentioned Oscar Handlin and, and that sort of movement um, to undermine the National Origins Quota System. And a lot of these uh, Catholic agencies, Protestant and Jewish, are really supporting that message, the remove, removal of the National Origins Quota System. 
And then by the time we get to the Johnson administration and their, uh, their work on, you know, pushing forward, which takes a couple of years, right, to push forward with the Heart Seller Act. Um, what Johnson actually does is they bring in a, a, a sort of interreligious committee. Um, there are other, there are all other non-religious um, agencies involved too. They come to the White House and I would argue that they're not actually affecting uh, change to the act, to the, to the bill that's being proposed because they're, they're largely happy with it. But they're sort of brought in to give the, this new immigration proposal and status quo their imprimatur to give it their, their sort of blessing. Um, and because of the, the place of, you know, of religion in American life at this point in the 20th century, that really, I would argue that's, that's a really valuable, um, blessing to give to, uh, to this significant immigration law. I mean, it is an interesting moment, this, this post-war period for, for American Catholics. You know, you know, given the, you know, on, on one hand, we have, you know, anti-communism becomes something that in some ways allows, uh, Catholicism to kind of enter the, the cultural and political mainstream of American life in a way that they'd, they'd not really been, uh, permitted to before. Uh, is, is immigration another strand of that kind of like Catholic involvement with American, uh, you know, political, cultural and, and social life in, in kind of new ways and have American Catholics always been critical of, of immigration policy? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it's one place where, um, they're able to, you know, assert a voice, um, on an issue that affects the entire nation, um, not just, you know, American Catholics. So I think that's really significant. Um, in terms of where they always critical, um, so what I've traced is I've, I've gone back really to sort of the 1910s. Obviously I've gone into the 19th century, um, to have context and, um, it's really in the 1910s that we start to see uh, a, a sort of more organized, sorry, I wouldn't say the 1910s, I'd say after the First World War, a more organized response to immigration policy. Now, to say that they're critical, what they, they, the moment that actually started, piqued my interest in this, in this aspect, in this Catholic interpretation of immigration law, was actually um, a case where a prominent Catholic was in favor of immigration restriction. Um, this was John Ryan, um, Monsignor John Ryan, who was the leading Catholic social theorist of the first half of the 20th century. Um, and John Ryan is most known for his work on, on the living wage. And his argument was that he supported the Literacy Test Act because he took the same position as um, organized labor did on it. He said that um, the influx of unskilled immigrants from southern and eastern Europe was uh, affecting American wages and that was affecting the, you know, the, their moral and material well-being of American, of American citizens and existing immigrants and therefore immigration should be restricted. So that was the, that was the sort of moment that got me really interested in this topic. And what I would say is from that point up until today, Catholic thought on immigration has always had a strain of restriction in it. Um, the, which might sound surprising today. So the argument they would make is that the individual has the right to migrate to find, um, to find a, a, a living wage, to find a place for their family to live in peace and security, but that the state, the nation state has a right to control and a responsibility to control migration 
in the national interest. So there's always been these two things. And so we see this tension coming up at different moments. In 1952, there was disagreement over whether or not to support the McCarran-Walter Act in part because of that tension. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's a question of emphases, I think, at different points in history for them. And, um, and we see, we see a bit of that tension today in the Catholic position on immigration, but because of the sort of the virulence of anti-immigrant sentiment, I think Catholic voices today are much more on the liberal side because I think, you know, they feel that they have to be because, um, because the, the stakes are so much higher. Or, well, not that they're so much higher. They've always been high, but that the, the, the nature of the debate today sort of forces that, I think. Okay, so to, to kind of round off with a, with a question to throw forward to today's cheery present. Um, <laughs> Start with the end so, with the easy one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and, and, you know, conservative hero Ronald Reagan's farewell address, you know, the, the Gipper, as he was called, you know, celebrated immigration as, as a real strength of the United States, you know, a key part of his whole idea of America's shining city upon a hill. And yet we now have a, a Republican president who, you know, this isn't interpretation. He is openly hostile to, to many groups of immigrants. And, and, and I also remember even the, I real I am no for me back in 2012 when Republican presidential candidate Rick Perry was booed because he'd had the gall while, while, while Texas governor to allow immigrant children to be uh, educated in some way. And, and it feels like there's some huge shift going on in American politics because back in the 1980s, you know, the Democrats were perhaps the most more more restrictive on immigration for for reasons of labour. So I guess my big broad question is here: How did we get here? Where where, where we've got this one political party now that's so openly hostile to immigration that used to celebrate it and, and now controls most of the, the levers of uh, power in politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, <laughs> in two minutes. Um, so I think, you know, one of the, one of the sort of strands of how we got here lies in, you know, what we were just saying about the effects of 1965 is the massive demographic changes that it had, that, that ushered in and that, you know, some subsequent, um, legislative moves ushered, uh, helped solidify and this shift away from a, you know, white, majority uh nation is it has an effect and you know the, the case you're talking about with rick perry it was you know it was people who it was you know citizens and voters who were cheering for him and this idea of uh both political parties being aware of who who's going to be voting for them is has such an important effect on on their positions on immigration today right so in the case of the republicans there's you know, especially under Trump, and I, I'm going to draw a distinction in a second, but there's uh, the sense that, well, you know, we're going to tap into fears about these demographic changes and fears about the, the rate of immigration. And on the part of the Democrats, there's a sense that, well, you know, we want these uh, immigrants to vote for us and people, you know, Hispanic Americans and others who are of more recent immigrant stock, we want them to vote for us. So that that's obviously in the forefront of their minds. Um, but I also think, I guess, one caveat I would put in here is it's it's really important to note that, you know, um, neither party has been shy about immigration control, um, even up until more recent years. And I think that there's a distinction between, I, I guess we maybe touched on this a little bit earlier, there's a distinction between anti-immigrant law and anti-immigrant 
sentiment and uh, you know how how the latter is harnessed for in in favor of the former and um, if we look back at you know what uh, both parties were doing through the 1970s 1980s um you know erca and the immigration reform control act was obviously brought in by reagan um it it both it legalizes the undocumented right and this is this is this amnesty is what we always hear about today in terms of that's a contrast you're drawing right between reagan and trump like we can't imagine that happening today but it also brought the the erca act also brought in sanctions against employers who knowingly hired undocumented immigrants right so there's a carrot and stick the illegal immigration reform and immigrant responsibility act of 1996 under clinton this expanded funding for the INS, right, for immigration infrastructure and for a border fence. Um, and we've had bipartisanship earlier in the 21st century that where both parties agree on border control. But I think one of the major differences, and it's become so much more stark under under Trump than it was under, um, say, George W. Bush, is in how immigrants are treated within the United States. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we if we think about things like... Um, the stop the the uh, the SB ten forty was it in Arizona that was brought in that allows the police to stop and ask people their for their papers based on how they look right so that's obviously ethnic profiling um these these changes and you know the the repairing the education of immigrant children um undocumented immigrant children probably um these changes are are things where I think you know the parties are are obviously on quite different pages um. And as I said, it's become so much more starker under Trump. Um, I hope that gets at your question. I, I guess my, my short answer would be that, you know, neither party has been shy, as shy about immigration restriction in, in sort of terms of controlling the borders, but it's how that's done that is, is, is the, is the vast difference. Cool. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, which, uh, you know, performing that Herculean task from taking us all the way, all the way from the days of the melting pot. Through to I don't really know what to call these days. Well, let future historians name them. Um, they'll be far, they'll be able to have far more perspective on it than I can at this stage. But but thank you so much for joining us, Gronia. Thank you very much. It's I've really enjoyed it. Um, and it's lovely to talk to uh, talk to a Scottish audience as well. And to and a fellow graduate of the yes, American Institute of course. Edinburgh as well. <laughs> um, and uh, to to listeners, we are going to be back um, before in your feeds before Christmas. Um, with another podcast so keep an eye out for that um, but until then thank you as well Malcolm always a pleasure never a chore thank you very much and thank you to Gronje as well yep and uh, we'll hear from you again soon bye bye goodbye Dream to me now. It 
four days to hitchhike from Saginaw. the faces 